Welcome to the Innate Flow Podcast. My name is Nate Baumgartner, and you are tuned in to a vibration in the time-space continuum, communicating the wisdom and reflections direct from the mouths of authentic truth-seekers and spiritual warriors. Drop in with us as we uncover how we can begin healing our collective consciousness in a holistic and intuitive way, awakening the sleeping lions one breath at a time. So sit back, quiet the mind, and open the heart as we integrate the here and now. What's happening, friends? In this episode, I dive deep with my brother, Cameron King. And Cam is a very unique individual. He has spent years studying martial arts and music and is a computer coder who is on the app team for Enlifted, for the Enlifted app. And I'm excited to share this with you because Cam is has an incredible intellect and he fuses his understanding of technology with his understanding of magic in such a unique way. I'm excited for you all to drop in on this conversation. If you are resonating with Cam's message, you can find him at at cam.org of.the.wild on Instagram. He's got some amazing steel mace flow and stick flow and qigong work. And yeah, check him out. He is a really rad dude and I trust you are going to enjoy this conversation so much. Sending you all love. This being the first podcast that I am recording in person and in a very spontaneous way. We did talk about doing this podcast mm-hmm. and had no set time or defined um, yeah. agenda. We just said, Monday, let's talk. We said, Monday, let's talk. And to set the scene, we are at the Enlifted Lake House. We are doing a variety of different activities that are... From grounding to expanding to dispersing in all different kinds of ways, physically, mentally, spiritually. I'm here with Cameron King, who is a very unique figure within the Enlifted community. And we have had some experiences, Cameron and I, since getting to know each other three days ago. Mm -hmm. And... I'm curious, for those who do not know you, if you could give a little bit of context as to who you are and what it is that you do. So I'm a member of the Enlifted app team. Uh, Two years ago, when Eric Blackwell was putting together the prototype, he met Brooks Meadows at a retreat and said, hey, I'm looking for a developer. And Brooks said, I've got a name for you. And so I hopped on board and built our original proof of concept, which we call the legacy. Um, However, when iOS ticked over into 15, the custom architecture that I had built just started breaking in unexplainable and untraceable ways. So we decided to rebuild everything again on a stronger architecture, and I decided to get out of development for the moment because I was so frustrated with the state of the art 
that I needed to take a step back to learn what, number one, to calm down, number two, to get some outside perspective, and so that number three, I can return to the problem uh, with some new solutions, some, some new action steps forward. So at the moment, I, I, I was writing code, now I'm doing user experience research and usability design. So my task is making sure that the software aids the user in fulfilling their goals. I, I do my best to understand who we're serving, what their desires are, how they see the world, how, how they process information. And then it's my job, along with my teammate Xavier, to arrange the page so that what you want is where you want it, when you want it. Uh, which, compared to coding, which is a very solitary activity, uh, user experience and design is it's all about people. It's collaborative all the way down. So it's, it's required a lot of expansion of my skill set, um, which I'm, I'm really enjoying. So that, that is very specific context as to who you are in this community. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I thank you for it. You want you want as, more context. It is helpful. And let's start with your childhood. Okay. Where did you grow up? I grew up mainly in Northwest Ohio, about forty-five minutes south of Toledo, in a little town called Findlay. Uh, if you've ever heard of Dietz's ice cream, they occasionally pop up on like top ten ice cream places in the U.S. There's actually a Dietz's bag in the closet upstairs. I noticed that. Uh, I did Taekwondo next door to that. That's the only notable thing about Finlay. Um, went to a little country school. Um, dabbled in sports growing up, but I wasn't very competitive. I did it mainly just because I, I enjoyed moving my body. And when I came into conflict with the, the shifting competitive culture of uh, my track and cross country teams, I ended up dropping. Um, but that's okay, because as I moved away from uh, running, I moved into more um, sophisticated, I suppose, activities. Um, what was it about conflict that you found challenging or that you found um, difficult to engage with? Because I had a similar relationship with it, and I'm curious what you, in coming to you know, further self-awareness, identify that as. Okay, well, let me explain the situation, and we'll go from there. So um, when I first joined the cross-country team, it was a very small group of people. We couldn't even field a scoring team. Like, we didn't have enough runners. So we ran just because we enjoyed running. And then a new coach came on, and some talent came in from another school, and over the next two or three years, the program started to build. And then we had a scoring team. Uh, so at one track meet, I'm sorry, cross-country meet, um, I like to make friends. I talk to people while I run. For me, it's running was a joyous activity. It wasn't. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't training. It, it wasn't like let's push myself to the limit. It's like let's let's run through a forest and meet someone. And after a race where I ran a time that was slower than my usual because I was talking to a really cool guy. Uh, at the next practice, I was taken aside by the coach and essentially told that uh, if I ever did that again, I'd be kicked off the team. That that once was what was standard operating procedure was now taboo. Well, you were talking to a guy during the race. During the race, while you were yeah. Running. Okay. So the the fact that I didn't run, um, that I didn't fight, compete, mm -hmm. was, was something that they saw as an embarrassment. 
uh, even though I was like we had seven members at that point, so my time never counted. Mm. So I was confused, and I I just had no idea how to respond to that. Uh, my response to conflict is to withdraw. Okay. Generally, I I would rather avoid a fight than mm. get into a fight. But if I do get into a fight, uh, I'm gonna go for the throat. So. So you didn't go for the throat. No, for your coach. no, you, the you withdrew. I, I go for the throat less and less. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, I'm uh, finding a balance uh, between what was hostility or aggression and, and passivity and what's becoming more um, responsive assertiveness. Okay. So being willing to speak up in a gentle way uh, instead of waiting for things to reach a boiling point and then blowing up and trying to sort out the pieces like we we can sort out the pieces we can heal the relationship but it's easier just to not break it in the first place sure so you you have this experience in cross country and also in taekwondo i imagine where well my relationship to taekwondo was a lot healthier uh okay. actually as a kid because it was something my parents um put me into I was resistant but after about six years I, I began to see the appeal okay what was the appeal um I I just f the mastery loop that okay. that's what it is it was something in my life that I could return to and just keep getting better at mm -hmm. um and it was a very interactive discipline. So there were, there were quite a few people uh, around, at least for the first 10 years or so. Uh, I'm sorry, eight years. The, the last two years, I was essentially on my own, which is pretty great. We got into some advanced training, like having to do your forms with your eyes closed and, and start and end in the same spot. Crazy shit. My, uh, my instructor would stop me after the end. If I missed, he'd be like, do you know which stance was off? And he wouldn't let me move on until I told him. It's, I love him for that. Um, because it was structured and communal and there was no sense of pressure, uh, it, it just became part of my life. And it, because there was a self-development aspect to it as well, um, every form came with an associated set of meanings from Korean history. And we also had to do some character development as part of classes, um, for which I am very grateful. Uh, it's continued to impact me to this day. What... Is your relationship with your parents like? So you have these experiences with um, sports in your early childhood and this relationship with competition. I'm curious what that early engagement and you know formation was with your parents in your early childhood and prepubescence up into high school. Mm -hmm. uh, I've experienced a lot of conflict with my father. Uh, he was an athlete in high school and college, and he encur encouraged would be putting it lightly, uh, my brother and I to follow in his footsteps. So when we were too young to make decisions, we were put into certain sports and forced to play year after year uh, until eventually uh, I just got sick of it and I quit baseball mid-season, which was the start of a major rift. Uh, I also got frustrated with our wrestling culture, even though I'm very interested in grappling as an art. And I, I trained uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a year while I was living in Memphis. And I'd love to return to that uh, at a more gentle school. The one I was at there was very hyper-competitive and aggressive. I'm still undoing a lot of the injuries that I 
experienced as part of rolling there mm-hmm. um, with, with something more uh, yin, you know, yin jujitsu. That's okay. That's where my ha- that's what I'm really interested in. Uh, I lost my train of thought. Your relationship with your father yes. being one where he was a competitive athlete. Yeah, and my brother and I are radically different from my father. We take it more after my mother, um, or our mother, I should say. So we're more um, introverted people. We're, uh, he's a programmer as well, so we're very text-oriented. We do a lot of reading. Um, he, we, our, our father also forced us to bicycle, which is something we eventually leaned into mm-hmm. uh, once we stopped riding just with him. It, it was once I was comfortable going 30 miles into the countryside by myself uh, at my own pace that bicycling really took on meaning for me it it was a source of freedom in high school like i can just go 50 miles and outrace a storm like that's it's not an everyday activity it was a lot of fun some of my fondest memories are from um the open plains and as much as i hated my father waking me up at 6 a.m to ride you know 14 20 miles as a 12 year old kid um being forced to stick with it eventually got me to the point where I relax. This one thing I relaxed into. Um, everything else we have continued to experience conflict. So your father seems as though he's a very regimented person. Um, rigid would be an accurate word. He's rigid, rigid but amiable. Okay. Um, he's a very friendly person. But he hasn't changed all that much in the last, like, 20 years, right? Mm. Whereas I'm changing my, well, trying to change myself, like, every day. So it's, um, he likes doing things a certain way and he's resistant to change. Okay. What, what do you facilitate in differentiating yourself from your father supports you in being open to change? different from what you learned from him because we take on these traits from our parents and they become augmented as they as we assume them based on these different aspects of nature and nurture i'm curious how you both internalize that rigid nature Mm -hmm. and then how you adapted to learn how to change my rigidity has expressed itself through programs of self-development. Um, since I first got interested uh, in creative pursuits, uh, I started with drawing when I was about 10, uh, and then I got more into the physical pursuits as I hit puberty. Um, as I started getting serious about these things and wanting to do them for myself, I thought, okay, there, there are things I can do outside of class, outside of the group activity on my own that will make me better. And so I started writing my own training plans. Um, and I would write them when I was feeling really good and really optimistic about what I would be capable of doing. And then I would go through it for a week or two and I would be broken and exhausted at the end because I, I had no idea what I was doing and I was making unrealistic expectations of myself. But I kept thinking, oh, something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. So uh, there's that rigidity in the sense of like I kept telling myself I have to act in this way to be better. If, mm-hmm. if I'm not 
doing it like this and the results don't look like that, then then it's me that's broken. And my response to that was, okay, well, what can I change? What can I change? So I, for many years, I kept writing new programs of self-development. They all failed. Uh, I think the longest I stuck to any one was like 17 days. Um, the, when you the, say self-development, you mean physical development? No, I mean uh, full spectrum full kind spectrum. of thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, originally, it was about artistic development. I, I really, um, as I got interested in art, anime was becoming popular in my social circle. So I saw these beautiful images of stylized uh, fighting. And I thought, you know, I want to be part of that. And so I, I got into deviant art. Um, some of those people were the friendliest people I've ever met. Uh, they were very supportive. And I, I started going through the training materials they were offering. I was like, okay, I'm going to draw for like 30 minutes at this time, and I'm going to produce these things. And then it, it grew from that as I got interested in wrestling. Like, okay, I'm going to do this workout, and then I'm going to you know, do the, the dowel with the weight and it grew from there. Once I was in college, it was like, okay, I'm going to read these books, take these notes, write these essays. Uh, and then once I realized that the intellectual approach wasn't enough, it was like, okay, I'm going to meditate for this length. I'm, I'm going to explore these esoteric concepts. I'm, I'm going to write and cast spells for this length of time. Um, so, the, so you touched on a lot right there. Yes, I am a lot. <laughs> there there's something I would like to come back to in a conversation that you and I had had earlier sure. in growing up in a very religious household. Mm -hmm. That being something that, you know, we all take on as children and then either grow into or out of. I'm curious what your experience with organized religion was and then how that evolved into casting spells and working with esoteric magic. All right. I, I like where this is going. Uh, so as a child, I took Christianity very seriously. Uh, I was... Bible thumper is a bit of a pejorative and, and a little bit of an overstatement, but, like, I believed, you know? I believed. Uh, but it... The problem of suffering is the one that I kept coming back to. Um, the, the argument that like it has to be there to illuminate the good is one that has never convinced me because it, it relies on the assumption that God must play by the law of balance. But if God must play by the law of balance, then God's not all-powerful. The law of balance is all-powerful. So that's what I should be worshiping. Um, so God chooses to play by this rule. Like, that's that's okay. That's that's a different way of approaching the problem, um, but yeah, I I just I experienced great inner turmoil because I I didn't know where I fit in the world. Uh, other people seem to have this sense of purpose and existential stability that I I completely lacked. It, it wasn't for lack of interest in things. I I'm interested in so many things. It's which one do I settle down into? Which one do I develop? Which one do I commit to? Am am I committing to the wrong thing too early? You know how do I know that I've married the right woman? Um, so existentially, I've I've been a bit of a player, although. Um, romantically speaking, I'm, I'm a serial monogamist, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so as my internal existential angst grew and the um, 
ceremonies and rituals that I had been exposed to as a child stopped having value for me. Uh, it it was it was a very slow thing. There wasn't I didn't have a crisis of faith. It How was did a, they stop having value for you? Because uh, you were questioning more and more things, you had more and more curiosity about these different philosophical belief systems. Yes, these ones that were more familiar to you became less and less, you know, interesting. Is that? Um. I was starting to see the world in different ways, and my worldview grew to be in direct conflict with the communities that I had grown up as a part of. Okay. Uh, how, how was your worldview evolving from one of you know, Christianity into one that was more broad and inclusive? Um, so when I originally left Christianity, I was not broad and inclusive. I, I became very hostile to religion for a while because I, I believed that it had failed me. Okay. And I saw many other people who were having similar experiences. Um, you know, we here in the West, we talk a strong game about um, Eastern mysticism, especially Buddhism. But you, you talk to kids who grew up in Buddhist communities and, you know, they hated going to the monastery as kids as much as we hated going to church. Right. Sure. It's uh, certain aspects of human social life are, are universal. Um, but so I, I was hostile, actively hostile for a while, although I, I did my best not to express it too frequently um why was that because i recognized the damage that it did you know it, it feels good to be angry it, it it feels good to destroy when you're frustrated and lost because it's like okay there's something i can do mm -hmm. that's something i know i can cause to happen this thing that was like that i have now changed uh changed from functioning to hurting uh which is the the damage on both sides uh eventually i realized as um let me back up on that story so i stopped becoming hostile when i read the book the varieties of religious experience by william james it was recommended to me by one of my teachers so william james was a pragmatist philosopher and psychologist so he spent years studying uh the experiences that people were having as as a part of christian communities and observing those effects on their attitudes and behavior over time and so the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, is just about the, the common patterns that he sees and, and what some of the things that he believes are the psychological processes that he believes are at work. Uh, he develops some of his own theological thought at the end. For instance, he, he believes that if God talks to us, he does so exclusively through the unconscious, that, that his internal movement is, becomes aware to us from within. You know, it's, it's the internal stirring, the, the first movement of the heart. Uh, I don't know if those are his exact words. It's been a couple years since I read the book, but that's so how I express like it. it sounds like inspiration to create things to a degree. I imagine it that's can a big be. aspect of it. Um, creating stillness is also sure. a, a great option. Um, where was I? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I read this book, and it, as part of his argument, he says, okay, yes, there are all of these things that are complicated with organized religion but if you look at religious experience as separate from these um organizational capacities like you 
you can't deny that it has a positive effect. It, it, um, it grounds us. Our, our sensate clarity increases. Our ability to cooperate increases. Our ability to see a larger picture increases. And the, the emphasis on skillful means of relation is something that it has been a part of secular life in other cultures, just not American culture all that much. Uh, you know, we might talk about core values, but by and large, that's just something the business hangs on the wall. It's uh, although we're we're getting a lot better about working these things in nowadays because we we feel the lack, we see the damage that we've done to ourselves and our world by by not having values at the heart of our behavior. Um, so William James got me interested in the the pragmatic effects of things, and when I got interested in neuroscience um, and started touching anthropology, I was like, okay, the, the fundamental system here, I don't believe is any one revelation. You know, what, what I'm seeing is uh, systems of systems. Like, we all have this capacity to learn and organize, and depending on when and where you are, you arrange the information differently. Um, timeless truth is always expressed in a particular context the, the old zen masters say there is no perfect word as soon as you say one thing you've left something else unsaid as soon as you point one way the as soon as you direct attention to one place it's missing something right sure. so the only way to catch everything is to not look at anything which is the the paradox of the heart of the problem um so after reading that book, I got interested in Stoicism and Zen Buddhism in particular. Uh, the writings of Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus were particularly valuable to me. I, I carried them with me, um, read them as I traveled. They're, they're heavily underlined. And I, I started to practice some of the things. So um, previously, riding with old men, riding my bicycle with old men, if there was a headwind, it was a topic of complaint. Um, once I decided I was a stoic, I would just ride into it and just observe my attitude over and over again. Like, okay, why is this frustrating? I can feel that I'm working hard. No, it's that you feel like you're slowing down. You're putting in all of this effort and you're not going as fast as you're used to going. So I just started adjusting mental gears internally. I was like, okay, I'm gonna optimize for effort instead of pace. And then I'm going to imagine that I'm traveling as fast and just think that I'm traveling farther. And all of a sudden I was calm and I could go 15, 20 miles straight into one of these things all by myself and then ride it home, which is something these old men rarely got to do. Uh, although when we organized rides, that was, you know, that's how you like to do it. You, you want to swallow the frog and then downhill to the finish. What age were you as you begin to get into Stoic philosophy, Eastern philosophy, and begin questioning this religious faith, which then developed into that antagonism towards it? Uh, well, I started with the antagonism and then developed into the other things. Um, I got interested in Stoicism when I was uh, 18, 19, and I, I read a couple Buddhist books. Uh, Zen and the Art of Archery was particularly impactful on me. Okay. Um, 
but I didn't practice all that much uh, until my senior year of college when one of my friends also got interested in Buddhism. So we bought a couple books, studied them together, and we still occasionally sit to this day, although we're, we're not super hardcore about it. Uh, we call ourselves Buddhish. Um, you know, we, we drink, we smoke, we, we eat meat, we fuck. Um, and we all also try to channel love and peace toward all beings, you know? Sure. So at this point, you're, you know, in this space of expansion from philosophically. Mm-hmm. How, how does your relationship with your parents move alongside this as you begin questioning and they're in this space? And we have not yet gotten into your mother and the the aspects of her personality very much mm-hmm. as much as your father you know i'm curious in that balance you mentioned she was more introverted what is your relationship like with her hmm it's a complicated question i'm definitely closer to my mother than i am to my father our relationship is much more healthy um and there's especially since my break from the faith there has been a growing emotional distance between us because okay. there's a there's a communication gulf that we haven't found a way to bridge yet we have yet to find a way to bridge mm-hmm. let's get that knot out of there um th- when I was 16, I was sitting in church, and the, the pastor said, you know, take communion as the Spirit moves you. And at that time, since I was questioning my faith, I, I didn't feel the Spirit move me. So I stayed seated. Uh, my parents were apparently embarrassed by that. And they took me aside and said, hey, don't ever do that again. And so I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to go to church, I might as well at least get a snack, uh, which is not super healthy way of viewing the communion but it got me through uh what was otherwise a what had become a largely uh, meaning without going through the motions mm-hmm. you know do you imagine if you had this conversation with your mother about your present philosophy belief system about the world it would clear up tension no. Or create a deeper rift, a deeper gulf in communication? Uh, I don't know if there would be more of a gulf in communication. Uh, and it's difficult to say whether w- tension would be created or surfaced. It's also difficult to say whether such surfacing or you know, tensioning is necessary for healing. Um, what? One of the Qigong sets I know, the Wu Song, um, or the, the five methods for relaxation, it's all hard contractions. That's what it is, because the easiest way to get your muscles to relax is to turn them the fuck on. Mm-hmm. Um, although, if you're not aware of the, the background tension and adhesions that are there, if, you, if your nervous system can't tap into that, then it can't let it go. So running tension through the system for a while, number one, gives time for the waves of activity through the the brain to build and and build potential and for that for the the whole chain to turn on and once it's on and really then you can let it go mm-hmm. and there's that softness there's that smoothness that stillness so what would that instill in wisdom as you um bridge this gulf that you feel with your mother 
Well, if I were going to take my own medicine, it would be to have the difficult conversation. And at the moment, I am avoiding difficult conversations with my parents because I am dependent on them materially. Gotcha. Uh, so I would rather... I'm waiting to rock the boat until I can earn my own bread. Okay. Uh, which is close now. It's... Um, I'm a very risk-taking person, and I'm interested in uh, that which has not been done. Mm -hmm. So my career path has been uh, largely under the radar. Sure. You know? Um, I've, I've spent more time working for things that might go somewhere or that will go somewhere than actually, like, earning a steady paycheck, you know? I can relate to that. It's an investing in something that you believe in deeply even though it may not be bringing you financial gain at the moment with the understanding that you are both putting your energy into something that you know is in alignment mm -hmm. with the things that you want and also that the opportunity for investment is much larger in the end versus you know spending 40 50 years working a dead-end job to die unhappy Mm -hmm. I've been working on the Enlifted app for two years so far, and uh, largely my compensation is this. Yeah. It is this place, mm -hmm. um, the lake house. The, the connections that I've made here are uh, worth more than their weight in gold, man. There's uh, social capital, I find, is a lot more important than... Uh, intellectual or material capital although you you need all three to make things happen but if you start with the social capital you you can gather the others it's it's real hard to think your way or buy your way into community and, and community is what makes humans strong the the psychologist Jonathan Haidt argues that we're um, sort of halfway through an evolutionary phase right now um, Apes are a little more, I don't want to say solitary, but they, they cooperate, they're capable of cooperating less, whereas humans can, can interact on grand scales through, through um, the organi organization of ideology, or, or morality, if you prefer. Um, but the, we're, he says we're 70% chimp, 30% bee. So bees are like the, the quintessential hive mind. It's everything is for the hive. You know, there is the queen and everyone serves the queen. Who here is Kim? Let that be known. <laughs> queen bee. Beyonce of the kitchen. Yeah. Oh, man. Kim and Will have been killing it in the kitchen. The food here is incredible. Um, my poops have been excellent. Mm. I don't... Watching your stool is a sign for health, people. Is It's a serious thing. We don't talk about it because it's embarrassing, but you can learn a lot about what's going on in your body by, by looking into the toilet bowl. Certainly. Many uh, taboos being broken throughout this, this past 10 days. I'm curious what... As you build more um, integrated relationship within this community... What does it mean to you? What value do you receive from it specifically? Hmm. It's difficult to, to capture in a single word or phrase because the impact of this place is um, holistic and long-lasting. You know, the, the lake house experience doesn't end when you leave. The, the integration phase continues for quite some time. 
as, as well as the, the nourishing of the new relationships forged here. Um, what has it been in previous times for you? Uh, coming in and then leaving increased self-confidence uh arising from a sense of competence so i i'm i'm an isolate a hermit i i uh spend most of my time by myself and that's how i like it uh for the most part and so i really don't know how i stack up against other people uh and uh i have as many of us do both the superiority conflict uh, complex and an inferiority complex you know i'm better than you but i'm not good enough uh, but if nobody else is around, then I, I just assume that they're better, right? That I'm somehow falling behind. And so I, I had this belief for a while that, you know, like I'm not working a real job. I'm not doing real work. I'm, I'm somehow falling behind other developers. And uh, I discovered the precise opposite was the case, uh, that I could do things that very few people can do with code now, uh, which is exciting and uh, a little lonely at the same time because it's difficult to find other programmers to talk to about it well i see what you're describing as this battle and harmony potentially between the inner critic and the ego and within the finding the the middle path between those is understanding that we're already whole and perfect for who we are in our unique soul's mission in this moment in presence I, I like the phrase, you do the work in the space in which you find yourself. Um, the, the point of spiritual practice is not to um, achieve some perfect holy life. It's, it's to put forth your sincere effort right now. Because that's all you can do. You can't put forth your sincere effort tomorrow right now. You, know, you, you can't fix yesterday's problems, right? You, you, you can only do what's... What's here? Uh, sincere effort is the point to be emphasized, but that, that's my Zen heritage coming through. Um, Shunryu Suzuki says that a lot. So you go to college. Yes. For, for what? Originally, uh, music. So th there are a couple tracks in music. You can become a performer, an educator, a composer, or a historian. Essentially, they, they all take the same core classes uh, about theory, harmony, and you know, working with the piano. Uh, and then they take specialized courses after that. Uh, so I was on an experimental degree. There was only one other person on it in my uh, entering class where we took all the same core classes as everybody. And then we were allowed to take whatever um, specialties we wanted to, to pick our own path through. Um, which was exciting because I, I knew that I loved music and I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. Uh, however, as my musical training progressed, number one, the, the amount of... So I, originally I was admitted for clarinet and voice. Um, I'd been playing clarinet since the fifth grade and at that point I'd been singing for about a year. And the, the amount of clarinet playing that was asked from me brought a lot of tension into my neck and jaw that I didn't know how to deal with. Uh, and I de also developed performance anxiety. So I had this compo these compounding mental, emotional, and physical issues that um, became quite a storm, quite an inner storm that took a while for me to tame. And as it raged, I had to take a step back from music. 
uh, I still continued to participate. Um, I was part of a clarinet trio for a semester after I dropped, which was, I mean, we got to play some klezmer music. And klezmer clarinet, man, I mean, that is the shit. If you want to get down and dirty, klezmer music, man. Ah, yeah. Klezmer clarinet. I love the clarinet. And they got that E-flat clarinet up above the... Oh, man, it's delicious. Um, but then I also sang in the music major choir for a couple years, which was uh, a wonderful experience. I, I, I treasure my time in collegiate chorale. So then where did music lead you into coding and getting into computer languages? When I first started reading nonfiction on my own, so I did a lot of reading growing up. Uh, I was rarely seen without one or two books in my hand, but it was all fiction. Uh, I, I just loved adventuring, but my senior year of high school, I got interested in astrophysics. And so I just started pulling interesting things off the shelf. And the first book I bought for myself is called Music, the Brain, and Ecstasy by Robert Jourdain. And in it, he runs through you know, a, a simple neurological model of, of how we process music, a couple models for consonance, dissonance, and, and rhythm, and how they play out in the brain. And, and then he walks us through how we arrange these things to create these emotions. And by, by the end of it, I had a much deeper appreciation of this thing that had been part of my life for many years. And I thought, okay, you know, thinking in terms of the brain helps us understand lots of things because it's, it's the mediator for the human experience. Um, so once I decided I wanted to take a step back from music, I took a step forward into neuroscience because I was really fascinated about who we are and how we work about, about how I work, because I, I will be the first person to admit that I don't understand myself all that well. That's why I'm constantly trying to, uh, that, which is exciting, you know, to be a mystery unto oneself, um, an eternal inward journey. What's what's not to love? As I got deeper into the neuroscience courses, uh, number one, the level of detail that they were going into wasn't super relevant to me. Um, it, it didn't. I had. I would have had to put things together um, to integrate in a way I wasn't prepared to in order to understand the impacts of the information on human behavior, which is what I was really interested in. Um, and also I learned that professional neuroscientists have to work very slowly and patiently. And that is not something I was interested in at the time. Uh, so I had a little exposure to programming because it's what my brother was doing. Um, it was fun. I was good at math uh, and I like solving problems. So I took a couple classes, took a shine to it and just went from there. So at this age, you, you've shifted away from music into coding music is still a part of your life yet I, on I the dabble brain. with it but it, it doesn't look at all like it did when i was what i would call a serious musician you know practicing several hours a day okay so then how do you integrate that analytical aspect of your life with the spiritual as i know you're very deep into magic esoteric spirituality what was the the inroad to that um long study i i've been working on merging my spirituality and my professional work for a long time um i i could feel that there was there was a way for what i was 
let me back up. Buddhist training can be broken up into essentially three categories. There's the training in morality, which is about our thoughts, words, and deeds. It's, it's about your intentions and your behaviors. There's the training in concentration, which is what many of us know as meditative training. It's, it's focusing the mind in specific ways on a specific task. This is a good time to point out that concentration and deconcentration focusing on an object and releasing all objects you know like doing push-pull supersets that's something we got to do for health that a lot of uh meditational teachers sometimes skip but um gloss over that um prompt me again please <laughs> how you integrated the analytical aspect oh of yes so the the third training insight um is building a new model of the world it's it's upgrading your perceptual machinery to see things the the way they are now the way they've always been the, uh the way they always will be and as i was learning more about insight practice and the the supporting theoretical models and studying cognitive neuroscience and the ways that they make sense of the world and also studying the nature of programming languages and, and how we convince computers to do things, uh, I, I began to see these overlaps and I, I, I could just feel it at first. I just, there was a long time coming just sitting with these things, you know, diving deep into each one at a time and then, you know, trying to bring them together um, until I eventually, uh, I have a mission. I've been procrastinating on it, uh, or rather I've been blocked, but I, I have a very clear idea of how to embody um, the spiritual ideal I seek in the technology I'd like to use. Mm. Break that down, please. Um, the computer revolution hasn't happened yet. This is something that most programmers know but most um, ordinary people do not. At first, this sounds ridiculous because computers have revolutionized our world in a sense. We're, we're able to collaborate and create on a scale hitherto unknown. You know, we're, we're producing massive amounts of data um, and marginally less insight. Uh, <laughs> information toxicity is a thing too. More information is not always better. You, Without a goal to organize which information you find and how you interpret it, it's easy to just spin, you know? And go nowhere fast. Just know a lot about nothing um, to be very good at trivia. Um, so what, what would the computer revolution look like? What Simple test. Can anybody change anything at any time? If the answer is no, then we're not there. If the answer is yes, then we are. Here's what I mean. The software that you're using right now, if you dislike something about it, you know, the, the button arrangement doesn't make sense to you or you know, one of the features could use a little upgrading, uh, even if they offer a plug-in system, number one, they're usually quite limited in the, the, the kinds of things that they allow you to do. Uh, and number two, um, most things just don't have plug-in systems. You're... Uh, software is currently an oligarchy. There is a small core team that is allowed to make change. They would say responsible for. I like the word. I prefer allowed. Allowed to make changes to this core structure and everybody else is forced to consume it. 
there's no technical reason that this should be so. It is trivial to build systems that you can rewrite as they run. In fact, developers have supporting machinery to do this as we write our code because um, in order to make rapid progress, you want to have immediate feedback on your actions. The, the old uh, cycle of programming that people think of where you, you write out your text file and then you feed it into a compiler and then you get a program and you run that, that's a very, it's a terrible way to do things. It's, uh, we, we did it because we needed fast code and we had weak machines, but the feedback cycle is extraordinarily slow. You, you can write less code because you spend more time waiting to find out what your code is doing. But um, since the 70s, we've had multiple designs for systems that you can rewrite on the fly. Smalltalk is a good example. Um, so the guy who, if, have you heard the phrase object-oriented? in relation to programming? No, I haven't. Okay, it's it's commonly um it's a commonly heard phrase. Alan Kay is the guy who who coined the term. And the the big language that that he and his buddies wrote uh, was called small talk. There there are some variations of it still in use today. Pharaoh is the most popular one. Um not not quite like the the name of the Egyptian king. It's missing a few letters. Uh, anyway, um Lisp is another good example. So we can build software that can be rewritten in real time by multiple people, but we're choosing not to. That That's one of the, it's the first hurdle. And it's a hurdle because it's not how our brains work. When you're working on yourself, there's no part of you that stands outside you to work on another part of you. You are working on you, as, you change you as you run. You know, you don't get to stop the program, make a change, and then start it up again. You're, you're always running. You're always in motion. It's always you changing you. That's what makes it such a great big mess. And that's what programmers are scared of. We, all of the, the process that we build around ourselves is because programming is a terrifying thing for the intellectual because there are so many ways to get about it. You know, how do you choose to organize your mind? Well, the great difficulty with our programming theories is that they spring from mathematics. So people who spend years developing esoteric capabilities of the human brain and powerful but unusual ways of seeing the world. And then these become the foundation for how we try to make things happen. Well, the, these things aren't intuitive to people. This is the second major conflict is, is that... Um, the languages we have for talking to computers are, are weak. They're fragile. They're brittle. They're, they're rigid. Even the ones that are more flexible uh, can barely approach the natural language. So there, there are a lot of things we can do in the design of our programming environments, especially moving beyond seeing code as text and seeing it as a system of relations that can be embodied in multiple different ways, of which text happens to be a, a really good way to do certain things, but it has intrinsic limitations uh, that can be overcome by more um, visual and direct... Uh, tactile is the word I like. I'm very excited about augmented reality. I, I can't wait. I can wait. I we am waiting patiently for the day when you and I can put on goggles and write a program by moving invisible, like hologram building blocks between us. Because all of a sudden programming, e even if it's collaborative, which it frequently is, we have pair programming um, processes um, where two people work together to produce uh, a working section of code. They're, 
there are many known benefits to working in this way, but most of us are, are lone wolves. Um, man, I keep losing my train of thought. Um, it's, it's perfect. And I would like for us, based on where you see we are headed with computer languages, with technology, and how this you envision to be developing in an ideal way, I would like to next get into your spirituality, your understanding, because one of our first conversations, it came up in, in you know, a collective conversation that we were having where you said, oh, I designed my own rune. Mm-hmm. And uh, I probably said sigil, but I also designed sigil, runes too. Sigil, rune, sigil, yes. And you broke it down for me in this very elegant way that was unique for me as you know a programmer explaining to me something very spiritual it was like a meshing of these two languages these two worlds of being you know very intellectual in the head and then also in the heart in the intuitive and i'm curious how that interplay works for you and how you found that um you know, as a part of your own belief system, as a part of your own ideal. Are you asking me to walk through the design of the sigil again? You can, and I'm speaking more broadly into how you have developed both, you know, the connection to your mind and then the connection to yourself, you know, outside ah, of space okay. and time. Yeah. Does that make sense? So let me explain my basic approach to magic. Um, Fundamentally, I'm a pragmatist, which means I'm more interested in causes and effects than interpretations. So whenever I hear about um, an esoteric or mystic experience, my first instinct is always to believe that that person had that experience, that they're not lying to me, that they really saw that, heard that, felt that. And my second instinct is to disbelieve their interpretation, to to believe that... um, yes, there is something on the inside of that experience that only they can see and only they can share, and we, all of us, have blind spots. Sure. You, know, you, uh, you can't see what you weren't trained to see sometimes. Or it's, it's difficult to see things without training and seeing them. This is where Buddhist training comes in, right? Like, reality is the way it is all the time, but uh, f- for reasons that they don't really, well, that we won't go into now, um, it gets tangled up and we have to do the work to untangle it. We have to practice seeing the world. So um, cause and effect as mm-hmm. a principle is, you know, one of the fundamental laws of nature. It's in hermeticism. Mm-hmm. It's in, um, you know, karma, karma as being the law of cause and effect. How, how does that relate more deeply to your connection to the universe, God, whatever you invent, source consciousness, the divine, um, and how you tie that back to our growth technologically, if that question mm. makes sense. The question does make sense, and it's a big question, so uh, let's, let's break it down piece by piece. Uh, okay. So, in cognitive neuroscience... Um, there's a problem, it has a name, it's called the hard problem. 
because cognitive scientists uh, are not that creative, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, and the hard problem is, what is the relationship of consciousness to matter? With our current scientific tools, we can't say one way or the other. Some people overstate and say, like, the brain is the source of all your experience. We can't know that for sure. We know that brain activity is strongly correlated with experience, and we also have um, observations of people with no observed brain activity coming back and, and reporting experience. So there's... Um, it's open to me. Um, so... The scientists say we don't know, so uh, as a pragmatist and a risk taker, uh, I say, you know, what are the, the practical effects of believing one way or another? Um, most of us believe that consciousness is something unique to humans, and, or at least self-consciousness is something unique to humans. Uh, animals have it. Some people believe plants do as well, um, but like the, they would not say that the, the couch is aware in any sense well um if we that that's seeing consciousness as an emergent property of matter it's you arrange these things a certain way and in the same way you know you, you arrange these copper coils you get a you get a field you arrange neurons or you arrange um you know, there are a lot of different ways that you can arrange a brain but you do it in the right way then the thing appears this is one model uh, another model is panpsychism, where matter and consciousness are non-dual. They're um, not quite one and not quite two. You can say that wherever there's one, there's something of the other. So uh, from that perspective, this couch does have a kind of consciousness. Now, it doesn't have perceptual machinery like we do. It, it doesn't have a prefrontal cortex like we do. So that consciousness is going to be completely alien to us. But from the panpsychist perspective, the entire universe is alive. So too our code. So the, the question for me is, um, who are we giving birth to? What is the world that we have created for ourselves? The, the digital world is, is a kind of heaven made real. It's this alternate reality that we access through black mirrors. And we choose what it looks like. And so far, we have chosen to box ourselves in. So how do we unbox ourselves? What do you... Technologically, it's, it's quite simple. Um, you, you open up the application stack. You work with live languages that, you can, that expose their structure and allow you to rewrite it on the fly. So you break down the distinction. Everything between. becomes open source. Essentially. Well... There are some use cases for locking things down or providing a little more structure. Uh, military, healthcare, and, and financial institutions are a good example. You don't want somebody messing with that kind of complicated code if they don't know what they're doing. So we could do something that's more open structure than open source, mm -hmm. where you can see um, like where the different slots in the system are, and you can put whatever you want in but you can't necessarily see what the developer put in. That, that's the trade-off that I'm entertaining as a way of bridging our, our current um, you-can't-read-my-code and what I would like, you know, the, the communal mind of the programmer where we're all working on our, our shared tooling. Uh, and, you know, you learn the craft not by uh, studying it at a school or at a boot camp, but just by going through your daily life and improving the software that you use, because that 
that opportunity is available to you. That's the first change that we need to make. The second change that we need to make is we need to redesign the programming experience. Right now, it's it's very abstract. It's it's highly cognitive. You have to do a lot of mental juggling, and these things aren't necessary. We can offload a lot of the cognitive skill set into the the electronic environment. It's just that it's very difficult to do so because it's it's a design problem, not a programming problem. So you you need to integrate the the people who are. Uh, designing novel programming environments are often brilliant programmers. Um, it would be gentle to say less than talented designers. Um, they're great at producing proofs of concept that show we can do incredible things, and the history of programming is littered with amazing proofs of concept that no one uses. Mm. So then tie that into spellcasting and magic in how you practice it and how we can loop in a component of our own you know, human consciousness mm -hmm. so that we are developing in a psycho-emotional way alongside our technologies. I see that that is something that is very much lacking as our technology develops. Our emotional spiritual growth is still largely stunted and how would that happen in an ideal world for you so that you know, we are moving and progressing as an organism alongside our technological development rudolf steiner if you're familiar has this quote that i'll paraphrase that says with each step forward in technological development we require seven steps forward in spiritual development to meet that gap. I haven't growth. heard that, and I would agree with that 100%. I, I believe that our main obstacles in technology are not technological. It's, it's not that we're not smart enough. It's not that we can't put things together. It's just that we're approaching programming in a certain way with a certain set of values and processes and goals, and, and that's what's inhibiting us. It's, it's that we're creating products in, instead of living things. Mm. Um, okay, so so how do we go about it? Well, let's let's start with magic. Uh, so I approach magic and esotericism from an engineering perspective. What I see are systems of rules that cause um, rewiring in the brain and associated changes throughout the entire physiological structure. So. Uh, I think of a spell as a program. The idea is to evoke a certain set of circuits in a certain rhythm to cause a certain effect. So I write all my magic myself. I'm, I'm certainly inspired by the works of others, but magic, strong magic comes from um, deep personal feeling. It's If it doesn't mean something to you, then it's not going to work. There are plenty of holy words around, you know? Which one resonates with you? That's that's what's key. Um, or if, if you want to think about it another way, um, so you sometimes hear people say things like, uh, how do you know that we all see the, the same color blue? Uh, on, on a similar note, like, how do you know that we all have the same definition from for the word can? Like, as a matter of fact, we don't. Because if, if you model word definitions neurally, the structure is different for everybody. There are, there are shared elements which we use to communicate, but because of our personal history, um, the, the specificity, there's, um, 
every person has their own language, right? It, there is no, like, set English. English is what we speak. Uh, I think the, the French idea of, like, systematizing the language in a dictionary is ridiculous. A, a language that isn't changing is, to me, dead. And I, I have no interest in dead language. I, living languages, man. Living things all the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I see what I like about magic is it provides a vocabulary for working with desire. Uh, it, it forces you to be very clear about what you want and why you want it. What are the, the long-term widespread effects of this thing that you're trying to do? Um, simply considering what you want to do and why is the, is the first and most essential step of any magical working. Usually you get into it, you'll find a deeper need that you want more or a different way to satisfy it. And that most, most of the time, the best magic is no magic at all. It is action. It is to go forth and do. Um, however, the, the ceremonies and rituals that we can create serve to ground us. And th- that's what I use them for. So um, the, the sigil that I designed, which integrated some uh, basic ideas from Buddhist philosophy and design thinking um, took the place of an affirmations practice for me. You know, each part of the symbol represented a specific idea, and their arrangement on the page represented their relations between one another. You know, the, the three trainings of morality, insight, and compassion uh, contain the practice of the four boundless abodes, which, which look like emotions, but they're really ways of relating to uh, other people, but more importantly, everything. That's why I prefer the word boundless abodes. It's because in the final version of this practice, it's the sensation of radi- like radiating light in all directions um, without a center. Uh, so those are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, which is um, being happy for when things go right for others and yourself. It's the, the real trick to sympathetic joy is being happy for yourself as though you were someone else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's to play in the third person, yeah. in a sense. You're still you. you know, th- this is where your perspective lies, but it's not a privileged perspective among the entire field. Uh, something goes well for you. Something goes well for something, somebody else. Something has gone well in the universe, and that's what, that's what sympathetic joy means. It's, it's recognizing that the universe is trying to get better. Uh, and the last is equanimity, which um, many people, it has different meanings depending on where you are in Buddhist teaching. Some people see it as this kind of cool, composed, you know, I'm not touched by anything. And there is a place for that uh, as a phase that you move through as, as part of a meditative session. And it, it can be a very useful and strangely pleasant state to be in, although the pleasure is, is not like the happiness or ecstasy that we're commonly familiar with it's it's much more cool and and tranquil um but it it, here it means um being okay with things so whether you're upregulated or downregulated whether you're angry if you're angry you're not angry about being angry you're not afraid of being afraid you're you're not excited that you're excited you're you're just excited that's okay you can hold that you you're just with whatever is there to be with whatever is there without judgment that's what's meant by equanimity in this context 
Um, so in this magic that you practice, mm-hmm. is your understanding that it has unique meaning for you and is therefore has this placebo effect? It's not you? a placebo effect. I'm okay. causing rewiring in my okay. brain and I'm just doing it very intentionally. Okay. And that is only happening in your brain that is reinforcing a different re- external reality? Or do you believe in something more fundamental <sighs> interlinking between people? and energy in our interconnected consciousness, our collective consciousness. Yeah. Okay. It's a big question, and it's one I would prefer to avoid. Uh, That's why I'm asking. I know. I, I mainly phrase these conversations in terms of neuroscience and biology because it's something that we can speak definitively about. Sure, let's speak undefinitively. Yeah. Uh, undefinitively, beliefs. at this point, I've had too many strange and unex- difficult to explain experiences, or at least experiences that are difficult to explain uh, within the, the common materialistic paradigm that uh, I believe something is happening. Um, we, on a, even on a physical level, the interrelation of every corner of the universe is a fact. You know, it's, it's not a question of are we connected, it's a question of how are we connected and what are the levers that we can use to, to move things in the space between us. I have no definite answers there. That's, that's part of what the practice is, is seeing how what I do changes the world in a, in a larger sense, in ways that we don't expect. Do you remember your first experience of something that you weren't able to explain scientifically, cognitively, that brought about that questioning, Hmm. that curiosity of what that is. The first thing, I don't know if I can remember a first thing. Um, Whatever one that stands out for you. Sometimes I I just get um, sparks of intuition about something that's about to happen. or I just get a feeling that I need to be somewhere or not be somewhere. And uh, I decided a long time ago that when I experience an internal movement that doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to trust it. Because um, false positives are a lot easier to deal with than false negatives. Mm-hmm. You know, I- I'm aware that the majority of the processing going on in the human brain is below the conscious level. Okay. You know, um what we call conscious awareness is the foam on the crest of the wave. It is, the ocean is vast. As we progress, and as you progress mm-hmm. in your own, if you're comfortable with the word spiritual development. Sure. Physical development, as I know your physical practice. I would say holistic development. Holistic I, development. I like working with the model of the four bodies, um, okay. physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Uh, I play with rearranging mental and emotional. Um, a lot of people argue that thought is prior to emotion or, or somehow more um, higher up in the, the hierarchy, but uh, there's not standard agreement on that across all magical systems. And I've experienced benefits working with... Ultimately, it's a question of where does this set of associations take me? And there's, there's value in seeing it both ways. <laughs> Uh, although Jonathan Haidt would argue quite clearly that uh, rationality is um, 
as as Daniel Hume put it, reason is always and ever the handmaiden of the passions. Mm. Like, that's a neurological fact. Yeah. Reason always and ever plays out within the context provided by emotion. Without emotion, you cannot reason. It's you can observe it in um, patients who have had um, specific kind of brain damage that uh, severs linkage between emotional centers in the prefrontal cortex. Their ability to perform moral reasoning is unchanged. Their ability to perform cognitive tasks is unchanged. Their ability to make decisions is severely impacted because they can't make snap judgments. They can't tune into a body feeling. They can't say this feels right or this feels wrong. They have to approach everything like filling out a spreadsheet, going through a, a list of pros and cons and weighing them and, and sorting through them. And this is a wonderful way of doing things carefully. And it's a terrible way for moving through life because we, we don't have that kind of cognitive capacity. The majority of the decisions that we make are, are spontaneous in the moment. You, you feel something, the mind responds. You, you lose the ability to do that. You can think as much as you like, but your ability to function. Uh, the, this, the story that's famous, somebody who had this kind of damage was trying to schedule an appointment with his, his neuroscientist uh, or neurologist. And the neurologist offered him two appointment times. And the patient spent 45 minutes running through the various pros and cons of each before the neurologist just listening, taking notes, uh, until eventually he says, let's just do this one. And the other guy says, okay, conversation <laughs> over. Um, so I, I would argue that uh, emotion it, or reason is subject to emotion. And then again, the thoughts that we have, uh, our, our attitudes, our belief structures, which are more cognitive, are the, the supporting structure, the infrastructure of our emotional flow. So there, there's plenty of, Cross, uh, cross pollination in things. I, I think less in terms of hierarchical trees and more in terms of a structure called a rhizome. So a, a rhizome is more what you see in uh, like root structures where there's no clear center or place to start. There's just this great web and you enter the web where you enter and you make your way through as you do it. It's um, a kind of organized chaos. What's happening, friends? I'm interrupting this episode to talk with you about something of incredible importance. We live in a time where there is so much polarization and fracturing in the world, and this has led to many of us internalizing this energy, which has created symptoms of depression and anxiety and these mind viruses that we encounter. And this is why the world needs you now more than it ever has. It needs your integrity, it needs your empowerment, and your capacity to serve the world most fully with your gifts. And one of the most powerful allies that I have encountered in my healing journey has been psychedelic mushrooms. And this is why I created my Plant Medicine Mastery Program. Over six months in this program, you will build a foundational relationship with these plant medicine teachers in a safe and effective way while connecting with the deeper truth of who you are and why you are here in this life. You will befriend the different aspects of yourself while building a vision for your life within a supportive community. And through the wisdom of mystery traditions and these sacred healing practices, you will build a practical tool belt for living with intention and creativity. And this will allow you to shift from being stuck in a fight or flight response towards your life 
into creating the dream version of it. So if this is something that you are feeling called to, I invite you to reach out to me at innate.flow on Instagram to schedule a free discovery call and see if the immersion is right for you. I'm sending you so much love. Be well. How does finding flow fit into all of this for you in practical ways in your life? Uh, I practice sensitive response. I, the way that I've, I've tried to find flow by setting up very clearly defined spaces and parameters. And I have found some success with that in the past. And at the moment, what has been working really well for me is uh, letting go of all my plans and just setting a focus like, okay, I, I know that I want to practice more of, um, you know, these martial sets this week because they have this effect in my body. So when I'm feeling this way, I'll go practice the set. I, I don't set a time. I don't set a length. I have some loose practice structures that I work with, but I play with them every time. You know, if you watch my Qigong sets uh, every morning, they're not exactly the same. There's, there's shared elements, but um, in order for me to find flow, I have to be uh, constantly responding to something with, within a, a loose structure. That sounds like a very intuitive practice of mm -hmm. understanding cause and effect and listening to what your body is asking you for. Yeah, the the intuitive way leads and the the cerebral way follows. So I, I want to feel um, the, the way that I approach magic is I take one simple little practice at a time, I adapt it to what feels right for me, and then I test it and I ask, do I feel different? You know, what has changed? What's, what's going on in me? And, and that's where the cerebral aspect comes in, is running these little one variable experiments one after the other. It, it doesn't set the full course. I can't sit down at the beginning of the day and say, okay, I'm going to answer these 12 questions. I, I'll, I, you start by tuning in, and then you ask, okay, where do I go from here? And then you form the, the smallest possible experiment structure, and then you go do it. And so you're, at least I... Uh, I'm constantly bouncing back and forth between these, these two modes of approach. Could you break that down step by step? If someone tuning in was interested in learning how to better tune in to listening to their body and taking action on it from their mind mm -hmm. to best support their holistic wellness, what would that practice look like? What has it looked like for you? I, I would advise such a person to do three things. The first thing is to practice widely. Uh, if you are in one discipline, get three more. Uh, if you are in four disciplines, get two more. Um, you want you, Our bodies are incredibly adaptable, and they, they love being used. I, I practice constantly, not because I'm trying to seek some goal but because i feel better for practicing that's that's what it is for me now it's if i don't practice then my body complains so i'm, I'm gonna keep my body happy um 
And whenever I've gotten stuck in my physical practice in the past, it's because I was too attached to one method of approach or one specific goal. When what I needed was to, I, you know, do more strength work or to approach mobility in a certain area or to, to unblock some body work. So full spectrum, you know, strength, mobility, endurance, skill work, restoration, body work, still like you do a lot. And uh, well, do lots of little things. That's my advice. Yes. It's do one small thing at a time and see how you feel. And if you feel better, keep doing it. And if you feel worse, don't do it again. It's it's really that simple. Um, the secret of my success is just that I keep showing up and doing that. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that for seven years now. Um, my physical practice, as, as I know it now, uh, started my freshman year of college um, when I was bored. So I joined the club gymnastics team. I was like, this is fun, and I know I'm weak. So I got into gymnastic strength training, and then I found Edo Portal, and it just uh, snowballed from there. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's first. Do, do lots of things, lots of little experiments. Number two is after those experiments, take time for stillness. Those even just one to three minutes to let the effects of what you just did settle in your body and to really observe them. Um, it, that's where deep physical intuition comes from is is being able to that's how you get to the point where later you can check in and say okay how do i feel right now how do i want to feel what is the set of movements that's going to take me from here to there and instead of like sitting down and working out math you can just oh i know that if i move my shoulder like this it's going to feel better because i've done it 12 times and, and watched it happen you know 12 times so do a lot, do lots of little experiments, take rest after, and then just practice tuning in. You want to work with structure, and then you want to break structure. You want to play with structure. You want to um, let go of achieving anything specific or doing things a certain way and commit only to showing up and exploring what happens. That's, that's the last piece of advice. That's where the majority of my growth comes from, that the, there's... The, the structure, the accumulation of reps within structure is essential for building intuition. And it is also essential to leave behind that structure in order to um, cross-pollinate the principle. What I'm hearing in that is the difference between being process-oriented and outcome-oriented, that you learn the actual process of what is happening, the stimulus and the response in a more granular way yeah. each time and become more and more acquainted with how your holistic mind, body, soul respond to each of these different stimuli. Yeah, outcomes are still important. It's just that for me the outcome is um subservient yeah. a little. Um it's I'm not if I fail to achieve a certain thing that doesn't really bother me. Because um, in the past, I would have thought something was wrong with me. Um, it, now I think something is wrong with how I judged myself. Yeah. Like, okay, now I've, I've learned something new about my capabilities and how my body responds to stress over time. How can I learn from that to move forward? Yeah. Beautiful, brother. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to have this conversation. My pleasure. Do you have any closing words for the audience? Rarely do as you're told. Mm. Full stop. 
thank you so much and 